morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds and all the enthusiasm of the middle of winter. Thank you for all of your enthusiasm. Um, we are delighted to have Elliot Call here today as our speaker and he'll be introduced to us in just a moment by Shane Chapman. I want to call attention to a couple of things. To get CME credit today, you text the K8JM to the appropriate place. It's posted on the wall and it'll stay up there through the session. Um, I want to announce next week's Grand Rounds, just so you're aware, is on the topic of cannabinoids as an alternative to opiates as uh, a management of pain. For the management of pain, this counts towards the CME credits in opioid education that you need for your license. So that is one of the structured um, uh, grand rounds that we're putting together to help get those credits. So put that on your schedules, if you will. Um, without further ado, I'm going to ask Shane Chapman to introduce Elliot Call. Shane, of course, is the Section Chief in Dermatology. He's an Associate Professor at Geisel and a heck of a guy. So, Shane. Of course. <laughs> Thanks, Rich. Um, so in dermatology, uh, we always struggle with finding topics that uh, would be relevant to all specialties in, in medicine. And uh, we thought this particular uh, topic uh, uh, would cover, you know, rheumatology, a little GI, and uh, primary care, et cetera, uh, including uh, dermatology. Um, poor Elliot, um, I uh, wrangled him into this, and um, I think he's going to do a great job. Elliot uh, grew up in California, uh, went to college at BYU, medical school at Texas A&M in Dallas and did his internship in Utah. Uh, came here uh, for dermatology residency. He's a second year resident. Um, in addition to those credentials, of course, he's an Eagle Scout and a triathlete. Um, has, has done uh, an Ironman, which is 140.4 miles. That .4 is hard towards the end of that 140. Um, and so the irony here is that we have an Eagle Scout, Eagle Scout from Utah uh, giving a talk on how to freebase cocaine. Uh, another interesting uh, happening as Elliot prepared for this talk is, you know, if you search for how to make a meth lab on a Dartmouth website, you get a phone call. I got phone calls. They, they're going, you know, hey, we, you got this resident here. Uh, they're looking up on sites that they shouldn't be on. I said, it's research. So, um, <clears throat> so uh, Elliot is going to talk today about the cutaneous manifestations or signs of illicit drug use. Um, he's been preparing for this for a long time. I know we'll take it easy on him. So, Elliot, take it away. Hello? First time wearing one of these. Hello? Does this work? Okay. Uh, thanks, Dr. Chabin. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Uh, it's a, an opportunity and a privilege to speak at Grand Rounds. And I really think I'm on, like, the Dartmouth IT top ten most wanted list. After doing my all of my research on the DHMC server, looking up YouTubes about how to make methamphetamines and cocaine, and so uh, I feel like they're watching me. But... Uh, and, and it is ironic that, you know, a Mormon kid from BYU is speaking in front of a group about illicit substance abuse. I'm well aware of that. But I think the topic is just fascinating. The more I learned about it, the more I wanted to, to read. And it really exemplifies a parallel between dermatology and not only just medicine, but all of its subspecialties. 
I obviously have no conflicts of interest with this topic, and my wife is here, and I can assure her of that, that I really don't have any conflicts of interest with illicit substance abuse. I wanted to start off with a series of questions and images, all of which will be covered throughout the presentation, so just kind of sit back and relax. Question number one, a patient presents with bilateral painless non-pinning edema of the hands. Rheumatologic workup is unremarkable. Imaging demonstrates subcutaneous edema. Which common adulterant can cause these findings? Question number two, a 38-year-old male is admitted for sepsis. Primary team requests dermatology consult for pyoderma gangrenosum. What is the diagnosis and why would you consider a culture? Question number three, a 51-year-old male is being referred for chronic folliculitis. Which two illicit substances should be covered in the history? <coughs> Question number four, a patient presents with several verrucous or wart-like and filiform, almost kind of finger-like, papules on the columella and nasal alar rim. Which illicit substance is most likely involved? So obviously my main goal today is to present some of the more common and unique uh, cutaneous manifestations of illicit substance abuse. And I want to dive into the pathophysiology behind some of these manifestations. I want to take a closer look at some of the adulterants, contaminants, infectious agents, and mechanical injury uh, related to illicit substance abuse and review some of the vascular and systemic complications in relation to both intravenous and subcutaneous drug administration. And my hope is that this is an interesting topic. It sounds very relevant after hearing from some of the faculty that uh, the topic of illicit substance abuse and marijuana keeps coming up in grand rounds in medicine. Um, so it is a, a very informative topic about a certain select subset of patients and I hope this information can help these patients not only receive the care that they need, but also avoid unintended procedures, and in the process, spare uh, health care expense. So I want to start off with a basic introduction, move into methamphetamines, cocaine, opiates, and then systemic complications. So this was a document, a 91-page document, released by the CDC in August of 2018, and it's an annual report that has some of the best epidemiology regarding the prevalence of illicit substance abuse in the country currently. And the CDC states that 18% of the population over 12 years old has used an illicit substance in the past year. I find that stat pretty remarkable. We see about 1,000 patients a week down at the Heater Road Clinic. So if you do the math, about 180 patients per week in our clinic have used an illicit substance in the past year. And the number has actually doubled from 24.6 million in 2015 up to 48.5 million in 2018. And this is mostly due to the legalization of marijuana uh, and the opioid uh, epidemic, as well as the prescription drug epidemic. And there's lots of sociologic consequences of illicit substance abuse, totaling about $271 billion in loss of occupational productivity, in prison, in poverty, in child, child abuse and neglect, and domestic violence. So the reported prevalence of illicit drug use by drug type was about 14% use of marijuana in the past year, 4.4% of opioids, about 2% of the population had used cocaine within the past year, which I think is again impressive. About one in 50 patients that you interact with on a daily basis has used cocaine in the past 12 months. 0.5% for methamphetamines and 0.4% for heroin. Okay, moving into methamphetamines. So methamphetamines are a subgroup of a larger group of, of, of amphetamines. 
And methamphetamine is typically seen in this form, either in a powdered form called methamphetamine hydrochloride, or it can be seen as these crystals, these sheets of crystals that gives it the street name crystal meth. And methamphetamines were actually discovered in the late 1800s, 1893, and they were sold as a non-prescription appetite suppressant as well as a nasal decongestion. They became popular actually in World War II. They were used by the German, Japanese, and American soldiers during long battles for its stimulant effects and its appetite suppressant. And it became popular in the United States in the 1950s, and then by the 1970s it was made illegal. And it's become a favorite street drug ever since. It's made by the reduction of ephedrine and pseudoephedrine, which are ingredients uh, in decongestants, in addition to several toxic chemicals such as acetone, ammonia, I'll set the mood, acetone, <laughs> ammonia, uh, battery acid, and ethylene glycol. And the process of making meth is extremely toxic, it's flammable, it's dangerous, um, and it's, it's very unsavory. So you can actually make meth, and this is some of my YouTube searching, uh, you can actually make meth by just using a two-liter bottle, having battery acid and fertilizer, which is make, it's, it's made meth labs more mobile, it's made meth more accessible, and there are several different forms of methamphetamines. It can be injected, it can be smoked, as in the crystal meth form, or it can be snorted. And the injected and smoked forms are probably the two more popular routes. So the first cutaneous sign of abuse of methamphetamine is one that I imagine we're all somewhat familiar with, and this is neurotic excoriations. Neurotic excoriations, also known as psychogenic excoriations, is a skin disease in which individuals will consciously and compulsively pick or scratch at their skin to the point where it becomes a repetitive and uncontrollable habit. And the sister diagnosis of neurotic excoriations is delusional parasitosis, where patients have these neurotic excoriations with an underlying formication or sense that insects are crawling on their skin. And these two diagnoses are very common in methamphetamine and cocaine use. And when it's seen in methamphetamine, it's sometimes referred to as meth mites, again, re relating to that that, fo that uh, formication or feeling that insects are crawling on your skin. So whenever a patient comes in with excoriations on the extremities or the trunk, and you have kind of a vague medical history and negative findings, delusional behavior, it's always important to at least screen for cocaine and methamphetamines. So this was a patient that was seen in our clinic, a 51-year-old male referred for chronic folliculitis. And you can see the various uh, excoriations, some are more linear, some are circular, kind of sharply angulated. Um, here on the shoulder, you can see various stages of healing. You have scars as well as adamix, newer lesions. Again, he presented with excoriations on the extremities, upper chest, and upper back. And this can have a broad differential, right? When you walk in the door, you're not going to necessarily think, oh, you know, cocaine and methamphetamine. He could have scabies, uh, some cause for severe pruritus, like an underlying lymphoma, renal failure, liver failure, so a very broad differential. But again, you know, in this case, he actually did admit to methamphetamine use, especially when the excoriations spare the central back, you know it's not a systemic process. You know there's some type of external manipulation going on, and that was a good clue as well. So again, always think about methamphetamine use when you see uh, these broad array of excoriations. So another common cutaneous manifestation of methamphetamines is called meth mouth. It's actually more of a mucosal manifestation. And I think this is another manifestation that most of us are familiar with. The 
process of meth valve can be seen whether you inject methamphetamine, whether you snort it, whether you inhale it, uh, but it's most commonly seen via the injection route. And the pathophysiology is really three-part. It's due to the vasoconstrictive effect of methamphetamine. It's also due in part due from the poor hygiene of the user. And finally, the chemical properties of the drug itself, the innate properties of methamphetamine, create uh, increased dopamine levels, which decreases saliva production, causes xerostomia, similar to a picture of that of Sjogren's disease. And you can get bruxism or, or kind of an effacement of the teeth from constant grinding of the jaws while they're high on methamphetamine. So the American Dental Association has come out with stages in order to kind of classify the severity of methamphetamine-induced dental disease. They describe the first stage as developing these small areas of plaque uh, near the gingiva and the enamel. And the plaque characteristically has this brownish-black color, and that's due to the acidity of methamphetamine. You can also appreciate the bruxism here, that effacement, the, the flattening of the molars and the incisors. The second stage, the decay worsens. It, it consumes the tooth. And by the third stage, you have uh, loss of the tooth. The decay ascends into the root. And interestingly enough, these patients uh, really don't feel the pain that you should have, you should experience with this amount of dental disease because of the methamphetamine. They also don't eat as much because of the stimulant effects. And so they're not constantly using their teeth, right? So this is kind of a, a cyclical pattern with the worsening decay. All illicit substances can cause premature aging. There's no question about that. But nowhere is it more apparent than in methamphetamine use. Methamphetamine has a much longer half-life than other stimulants. The half-life of methamphetamine is about 10 to 12 hours compared to cocaine, which is about 0.2 to 0.8 hours, so a longer duration of that high. And this can have a significant impact on the user's complexion. High intensity of users will do something called tweaking, where they will continuously take a drug to kind of chase that euphoria or that high. And this will result in them staying awake for days to weeks. There's been reports of patients staying awake for up to 15 days. Uh, and they experience severe malnutrition as well as they're not eating over those course of two weeks. There was a project titled The Faces of Meth. And this was created in 2015 by a deputy at the Multnomah County Detention Center. This was in Oregon. And this deputy officer was collecting mugshots of repeat offenders of methamphetamine use. And he was collecting these mugshots, and he produced uh, kind of a memoir showing the change in complexion of these users. And the Oregonian, a local newspaper, actually picked up these mugshots and uh, highlighted it on the front page of the newspaper as efforts to uh, dissuade users uh, in the methamphetamine epidemic at that time in Oregon. So this is one picture of a user over the course of 12 months and you can just notice the concavities from the loss of facial fat pads and just overall the aging process, again, just in 12 months. This is over the course of two and a half years. You can really appreciate almost kind of the hypervigilant state that a lot of methamphetamine users experience, as well as these neurotic excoriations here on the forehead and on the chin. This is even a, a better example of these neurotic excoriations, and I imagine there's some form of formication or feeling, again, that bugs are crawling on, on the skin here. 
This is over the course of four years. You can appreciate the loss of facial fullness, really allowing these underlying structures to become more evident. This is over the course of three years. You can see just the change in, in complexion and the eventual kind of descent of that soft tissue. This is actually, a, we'll end on a happy note. This patient uh, was originally booked in the detention center in the, in the early 90s, and the Oregonian actually did a follow-up study, and they found this guy, again, 15 years later, and he was clean. He came out of rehab and was reintegrated into society. So pearls for methamphetamine use. The multiple excoriations on the extremities and trunk and face should prompt further history, and you should ask about methamphetamines and cocaine. And when suspecting methamphetamine use, always look in the mouth. Okay, moving on to cocaine. Cocaine is an estimated $300 to $500 billion annual market here in the United States. So, you know, it still has Amazon beat for now. Um, it's an alkaloid stimulant uh, and a topical anesthetic, which is extracted from the lees of the erythroxylin coca shrub. Here are the leaves from this coca shrub. And this is actually an extremely popular herb in South America. It's been used in Peru for thousands of years to treat altitude sickness. These coca leaves are taken, they're soaked in gasoline, among other uh, chemical products, and eventually you extract the coca base from the leaf and you go on to develop the illicit substance. <coughs> the process of making cocaine, just like methamphetamine, is extremely dangerous. So I actually took a trip to Peru, uh, to the Andes, this past summer. And when you pull into the airport at Cusco, which is about 11,000 feet in elevation, you see this big bucket of coca leaves at the front of the airport. <laughs> I walked by, kind of curious, and I grabbed a handful, probably a little more than three, stuffed it in my bag, and off I went. A couple days later, I was actually on the Inca Trail, and I was not feeling too well. I was lethargic. I was fatigued, a little nauseous, and I knew I was suffering from altitude sickness. And this just got worse. I mean, I was really holding up the group. Uh, this was actually shot by my dad as I was trying to take a nap on the side. I just was not feeling well. And I remembered I had these coca leaves stuffed into my bag that I got from the airport. So sure enough, I took a couple out, and you actually place it in your mouth and put it in, in, in your cheek, and you suck on the leaf. It tastes terrible. But within maybe half an hour to 45 minutes, I was feeling great. I made, <laughs> I, I made it to Machu Picchu in stunning time. And uh, I actually found out that you test positive for cocaine one to three days after, afterwards. So that would have been a difficult conversation with my program director, Dr. Zug, after coming home from South America with a positive cocaine test. And that's about as close as I've come to illicit substances. So we'll just leave it at that. So, so cocaine comes in two forms. There's the white crystalline powder, which we're probably more familiar with. It can be mixed with water and injected. It can be inhaled, or it can be ingested orally. But it cannot be smoked. That's where you come in with crack cocaine. Crack cocaine is the freebase form of the powder. It's a hard, brittle substance produced by neutralizing the cocaine powder with ammonia or baking soda. And then it's heated until the process crystallizes. And crack cocaine affects the system within seconds compared to the powder form. A patient with, can get high on crack cocaine within you know, 8 to 10 seconds compared to the snorting of cocaine, the powder form, which takes about 15 minutes. It's cheap, it's accessible, and it's extremely, extremely addictive. Arguably the most addictive of all illicit substances. 
And in my research and, and reading about crack cocaine, there was an article in the JAD, or the Journal of American Academy of Dermatology, back in 2008. And this article referenced a study, a primate study, in 1985, when cocaine was really becoming uh, an epidemic. And they connected these primates, or these monkeys, to uh, uh, an IV, and the monkey had access to a lever that it could push to receive a small bolus of cocaine. What they found were that these primates forewent reproduction, food, water, all basic necessities of life in order to have just one more bolus of cocaine. In fact, one primate actually died of status epilepticus after pressing the, pressing the lever 12,800 times to uh, receive that, that next bolus of cocaine. And the article concludes that human beings, in fact, would act very similarly if we had an unlimited access to cocaine. And it just testified to the fact that addiction is not necessarily a lack of moral fortitude. But in reality, it's, it's a hijacking of our physiologic neurotransmission. So the first cutaneous uh, presentation of cocaine is snorter's warts. These are nasal verruque or warts that appear in cocaine abusers because as they snort the cocaine with the dollar bill or other paraphernalia, right, they place it in their nose and then they pass it off to the person next to them to take a hit and it gets passed around the table and thus allowing the transmission of the HPV virus. And as dermatologists, we see warts all day, every day. And this is an odd presentation. This is, you know, it could be just a persistent finger, you know, someone really picking their nose, but uh, you have to at least think about cocaine in this situation. <laughs> Matarosis is a general term meaning loss of the hair in the eyebrows, and this also has a broad differential. It could be leprosy, it could be thyroid disease, alopecia areata, but in this case, this was actually a picture out of a Brazilian journal that demonstrated the matarosis secondary to the hot steam rising from the crack pipe. That was actually, yeah, singeing the lateral hairs on the uh, eyebrow. You can also see cuts and burns on the lips, the nose, and the finger from chip crack pipes, as well as burns from heating process, uh, handling the paraphernalia. You can see here a focal burn on the tip of the nose, as well as on the fingertip here. And there are just thousands of handcrafted crack pipes that, that can be used. And you can imagine, you know, how could you not burn yourself if you're putting your face near heated aluminum wool stuffed into a, a Red Bull uh, can. You can also have midline destruction of the nasal septum. This is due to the vasoconstrictive effect of cocaine, and it results in this saddle nose deformity, and this can mimic granulomatosis with polyangiitis. Again, just another picture of this saddle nose deformity here from the loss of that nasal septum from, from ongoing cocaine use. And you can actually get uh, palatal perforation, which is, again, secondary to the vasoconstriction of the mucous membranes, which causes this retraction of the soft palate, ulceration, and ultimately a perforation. <coughs> I want to take a few minutes and talk about cutting agents, which are these unexpected ingredients that are added to the illicit substance. And cutting agents are in place to expand the volume or the quantity of the drug. And this makes the initial investment last longer, which results in a higher profit margin. You can imagine if, if you're a drug dealer, right, you're in the back alley, and you were to raise the price of your drug for your clientele. That could go wrong, right? That could be a little dangerous. So instead of doing that, they, they add these cutting agents just to expand the volume to get more, more profit. 
And there's three different categories of cutting agents. There are contaminants, which are just byproducts of the manufacturing process, and these are unintentionally added. There's dilutants in the middle, which are inert substances that are added to expand the volume. Examples of dilutants include talc, dirt, clay, enhance or drug and also facilitate drug delivery. So I want to dive into a couple of the adulterants. One of the most common adulterants is uh, quinine, which is an anti-malarial agent. And quinine has a bitter taste, which prevents heroin users from being able to detect the quality of the heroin when they taste it. It also has a mild hypotensive effect, which can mimic the rush of heroin. And it also is thought to be extremely sclerosing in terms of the lymphatics, so it can cause lymphedema. Lidocaine and benzocaine are anesthetics used during the uh, injection or intravenous portion of, of drugs, and it helps with that. And it also takes advantage of the mild euphoria you get with lidocaine toxicity. Caffeine, you know, we're all familiar with this one. It's a very common adulterant in illicit substances. It's cheap. Scopolamine is an anticholinergic agent that is colorless, it's tasteless, it's, it's odorless. And strychnine is a pesticide. It's a fine motor stimulant that helps uh, enhance heroin when it becomes volatilized. Well, there's one adulterant in dermatology that we really pay specific focus on, and that's levamazole. Levamazole is the most common adulterant added to cocaine since 2003. And the DEA in 2009 reported that up to 70% of cocaine had levamazole within it. And I imagine that number is even higher now. It's an ideal adulterant because it's inexpensive, it's widely available, it has the same taste and appearance as cocaine, and it has a very similar melting point. And it potentiates or enhances the effects of cocaine by increasing norepinephrine and dopamine in the peripheral tissue as well as the CNS. And unlike most cutting agents, because it's so popular, it's actually added at the onset of manufacturing of cocaine. So it's really hard to actually find cocaine nowadays without levamazole in it. Levamazole was originally an antiparasitic medication used for livestock, and it's still widely used in veterinary clinics. And it was commercialized and used inpatient for colon cancer, nephrotic syndrome, and rheumatoid arthritis starting in the 1970s. It was unfortunately withdrawn from the market in 2000 because of neutropenia acranocytosis, and this, levamazole-induced vasculopathy. They noticed in patients who were receiving this medication in-house that about half a percent, so 0.5% to 3% develop this rash or this cutaneous manifestation. And what you see here are these darky, dark, dusky, purple plaques uh, on these users. And we describe these plaques as what we call kind of retiform purpura, Retiform meaning net-like, and if you can kind of imagine here, kind of a, more of a net-like pattern, and purpura meaning extravasated red blood cells into the soft tissue. And when you see uh, this specific presentation of retiform purpura, again, you have to think about a vasculopathy. Some people might look at this and say, well, isn't that just vasculitis? There's, an, there's a distinction between the two terms, and I think that's important to, to highlight. Vasculopathy specifically means a thrombus formation in the arterial lumen and demonstrates with this retiform purpura. Vasculitis signifies inflammation that targets the blood vessel wall and creates purpura, but usually a macular or papular purpura on the distal extremities. So kind of two separate distinctions. And you can also appreciate 
the bullae or blisters here evolving within the plaques themselves, which represents acute epidermal necrosis. That tissue is just sloughing off. So the lesions of levamazole vasculopathy usually resolve within two to three weeks of stopping the cocaine. And unfortunately, levamazole is very hard to detect. It appears in users in their hair, their serum, in their urine, but you have to go to a lab and use gas chromatography or mass spectrometry to find it. And the closest lab I could find was in Pennsylvania. It's much easier just to do a urine drug screen for cocaine as it can remain in the urine for three to four days on a typical user, although chronic users of cocaine can see a positivity in the urine drug test up to 10 days. So this is a review article in the Journal of Seminars of Arthritis and Rheumatism in August of 2018. It's a review article of 192 patients who had uh, levamazole-induced vasculopathy, and they broke the, the 192 patients down into two groups. The first group had a medical consumption of levamazole, so those who had received it for medical purposes, and then the group two, which is the vast majority who had received the levamazole via cocaine or recreational consumption. What they found was that the organ most frequently involved was the skin. About 94% of patients developed uh, the cutaneous manifestations of levamazole-induced vasculopathy. But interestingly enough, about 10% of patients developed acute renal failure in the form of crescentic glomerulonephritis. Also about 10% developed pulmonary involvement including alveolar hemorrhage, pneumonia, interstitial pneumonia. So I think it's just important when you're at least highlighting or discussing the differential of, of levamazole-induced vasculopathy that you think about the genitourinary and the pulmonary organ system and screen for, for those as well. Purpura is the most common manifestation in terms of the actual cutaneous lesion. And the purpura most commonly occur on the face, on the extremities, and classically, the ears, which I'll show you a picture of in a second. And what they found in terms of the serology is that 94% of these patients developed uh, ANCA antibodies. And if you reflex it to the ELISA, oddly enough, about 40% of these patients developed both anti-myeloperoxidase and anti-proteinase 3 antibodies, which is unusual. Furthermore, uh, about 60%, two-thirds of patients developed antiphospholipid antibodies. So the article suggests that when you have a double ANCA specificity and a positivity for antiphospholipid antibodies in a patient who's being worked up for small to medium vessel vasculitis, that might at least be a red flag for levamazole-induced uh, vasculopathy and cocaine use. So here's some pictures of levamazole-induced vasculopathy. You know, and if you walk into the emergency department and you see these legs, levamazole is not going to be the first thing you think of, right? You're going to think about... Has the patient been on warfarin, warfarin skin necrosis? Are they sick? Are they septic? Is this a picture of you know, disseminated intravascular coagulation? Um, but one thing that will give this away is the location and distribution of these necrotic plaques on the face and classically the ear. This is a very common, what we call codochrome or image on dermatology boards, are these dusky retiform purpura on the ears. So it's just a, a little pearl. And no dermatology lecture would be complete without a little bit of derm path or, or dermatopathology. The arrows just signify the eosinophilic fibrin creating the thrombi uh, in the vessels. The outcome of levamazole-induced vasculopathy was favorable, but unfortunately a lot of patients relapse as they continue to use cocaine. So pearls for cocaine, when you see thinning of the eyebrows or focal burns on the face or fingers, this should at least create a suspicion for cocaine use. 
Warts on the alar rim are an unusual location. They're, you know, could have a wart on the finger and just be picking, but uh, it's better just to ask. Perperic plaques on the ears in the setting of vasculopathy, you should at least think about levamazole. And double ANCA positivity and or antiphospholipid antibody positivity should raise a red flag for cocaine abuse. Okay, opiates. So this is the field poppy or the papaver somniferum, and it's from this milky latex sap that's being extruded from the bulb of the opiate plant that you derive morphine from. And then morphine is, is synthesized to produce diamorphine or heroin. And you know, despite what Donald Trump says, all of this, the, the, the majority of opiates are actually coming from Asia, not South America. They're not coming from Mexico and, and other South American countries because the opium, the, the plant itself is grown in Asia and um, the Middle East, including Pakistan and Afghanistan, and that's where the uh, heroin is made. So heroin is the acetylated opioid product of morphine, and the acetylation increases the lipid solubility, so it allows heroin to cross the blood-brain barrier rapidly. And you can get a rush of heroin by injecting within seven to eight seconds compared to uh, the powdered form, which takes a little bit longer, about 10 to 15 minutes. Again, two different forms of heroin. We have the white powder form and the black tar form. The white powder form has been increasing in purity over the past 10 to 15 years. It was originally about 5 to 10% pure, and now it's about 40% pure. And this increase in purity has allowed the drug to be snorted or smoked rather than just injected. So it's really increased the appeal of heroin because a lot of people are very hesitant, as you can imagine, to inject the powder. Black tar heroin is a form that derives its color from impurities during the manufacturing process and also from the adulterants or dilutants that are added, like clay or dirt. It's insoluble in water, so it requires some type of solvent to, to break down the, the drug itself. And the solvent can be vitamin C, it can be citric acid, it can be vinegar, it can even be lemon juice. And there's been reports of disseminated candida in patients who used the solvent of lemon juice that was, in, that was contaminated with uh, candida, and they developed enophthalmitis and costochondritis from the disseminated candidiasis, again, from the lemon juice. Track marks are considered one of the most notorious signs of IV drug abuse, especially in heroin users. This represents overlying hyperpigmentation from chronic thrombophobitis and subsequent scarring of the veins. The ongoing thrombophobitis is thought to be due to both non-sterile injections as well as dull needles and also the irritating component of drugs themselves and the adulterants that are added to the drugs. So the most common site for track marks is usually on the left anti-cubital fossa on the medial vein and that's because most people are just right-handed. Eventually though what happens is you scar over the area in the left anti-cubital fossa, it becomes unusable and you have to search for other areas to uh, gain venous access. So users will start injecting into the lower extremities, into the feet, into the groin, and ultimately into the underarms and even the neck. And a lot of users understand the stigmata that comes with track marks, so they will only purposely inject into areas that are not typically seen, like the, like the popliteal fossa and the groin. And here on the top right, you can see kind of this linear array of crusted papules, and that represents an early track mark. And over time, with chronicity of, of intravenous use, you can see this overlying hyperpigmentation. 
Again, heroin needs to be dissolved in order to be injected. And you can imagine over time what happens to the tip of this needle on a fixed syringe as it's being applied to a blunt surface like a spoon. This is a picture of a fixed syringe over time and how dull it becomes. And you can imagine how could this not cause thrombophobitis after it's being injected time and time again. And for this reason, users actually prefer detachable syringes like we have here in the hospital rather than the fixed syringes. Other signs of cutaneous abuse include shooting tattoos. Many times IV drug users will uh, flame the needle with a match and the carbon and soot that's deposited on that needle is actually lodged into the dermis when it's injected, creating these dark blue grayish tattoos. You can also have tourniquet hyperpigmentation from a variety of different you know, mechanisms using belts, shoelaces, rubber bands, laces, sleeves, and shirts. And a lot of IV drug users will get tattoos to cover these suiting tattoos or these track marks. So it's important when you're doing a skin exam to look very carefully within those tattoos to see if you can see any of these signs. So puffy hand syndrome. Yes, it's a real thing. Um, it, it presents as this non-pitting, painless edema of the dorsal hands that may spare the fingers. It can involve the fingers, and it can actually extend onto the uh, proximal wrist and forearm. And these patients usually have an extensive workup because this can be one of the presenting signs of connective tissue disease with systemic sclerosis or arthritis. Imaging only represents subcutaneous edema, and it's estimated that about 7 to 16% of IV drug abusers can develop this puffy hand syndrome. And the more you look for it, actually, the more you'll find it. You'll be amazed. It's thought to be secondary to adulterants that are added to uh, the drug itself. One of the most common adulterants being quinine, which, again, is thought to be a sclerosant to the lymphatic system and causes lymphedema. Andres and others in the Journal of Addiction in 2006 highlighted independent risk factors for puffy hand syndrome, and they found that injections into the hands, intravenous injections into the feet, and the lack of tourniquet use all had higher prevalence of puffy hand syndrome. And there's really no specific treatment, unfortunately, for puffy hand syndrome rather than just nocturnal compression to help with the lymphedema. Okay, moving on to systemic complications. This was a case report in Spain in 2006 in which a male, a young male, stated he had fallen at home. And if you look at this, this it just doesn't look like trauma, right? There's, it's too unilateral. It's very well evenly planed. There's no bleeding. There's no external signs of trauma surrounding it. So the providers in the ED in Spain were a little suspicious, and they asked about further history of substance abuse. And it turns out that he had used heroin a day before. He had injected heroin into the anterior lateral neck. Users will, quote-unquote, shoot the pocket. What that means is they attempt to, to access the jugular vein. And this patient tried to shoot the pocket and actually hit the external carotid artery. And in doing so, uh, developed an embolic phenomenon or an arterial vasospasm that caused this ulceration on the frontoparietal scalp as well as acute blindness on the right eye. So intraarterial injections do happen. Uh, there's actually a wealth of information for users online about what to do if you inject into an artery. And this causes endothelial damage, thrombosis, ischemia, and necrosis, and it manifests as these odd-shaped ulcerations, many times unilateral in unusual sites. There have been case reports of scrotal necrosis due to pudendal artery thrombosis from femoral artery injections, penile ulcers following injection into the dorsal penile vein, 
And then, like we discussed, scalp necrosis, secondary to injection in the external carotid artery. So this was a patient, a 58-year-old male, who presented to DHMC from an outside facility to rule out necrotizing fasciitis. And he developed these painful, tense blisters or bullet on the left anterior thigh. And on further history, he denied any precipitating events and no significant trauma prior to the episode. And as you can see here, again, these really tense bullet surrounded by these dusky purple necrotic plaques that we call retiform purpura. And if you look closely, you can actually see there's this kind of halo of pallor or hypopigmentation. All of this signals thrombosis, right? There's, there was some type of microvascular occlusion in this area. So he was admitted for further workup and had an extensive workup with vascular surgery consult, lots of imaging. Here he is inpatient, uh, and the workup was unremarkable. On outpatient follow-up after discharge, you can see the evolution of these lesions. Now it's these really sharply angulated, well-defined ulcer with this overlying thick eschar. And on further history, we talked to him, and it comes, we found out that he has a long history of cocaine abuse. And he also had opioid use disorder. But he vehemently denied any illicit substance abuse prior to these lesions forming. So, you know, to spoil it, unfortunately, we never officially reach a diagnosis. But I present this as an example of when you do see odd-shaped ulcers unilaterally, you should think about intraarterial injections and illicit substance abuse. And I, I personally regret not getting a drug screen at the time of presentation. That's one thing I, I do regret. I, I think there was probably an injection in the groin, an intraarterial injection in the groin that caused this, but that's just my theory. So once the veins become sclerotic and completely inaccessible, users will oftentimes resort to intradermal or subcutaneous or intramuscular drug administration. And this is known as skin popping, which I'm sure we're all familiar with. Uh, the skin popping, when the drug is in the subcutaneous tissue, it actually increases the duration of the high. It's not as dramatic of a high, but it, with the slower absorption rate, it creates this increase in duration. And you can skin pop with anything you want, but the most common things are cocaine, opiates, with methadone being the most common, and barbiturates. And this results in these irregular, deep, circular, punched-out ulcers and scars. And it's most commonly seen on the extremities. Here's a picture of a user with chronic skin popping. You can see it spares the groin here. And it actually has a nice, sharp demarcation just above the knees. And each of these spots, each of these scars, represents a prior abscess, irreversible tissue damage. And uh, there, you notice here a couple spots have been left open with granulation tissue. And these are called shooter's patches. Users will consciously pick at these areas to maintain the rich vascular supply of granulation tissue in order to continue shooting in those areas. And I, I would like to mention also that users who don't want to skin pop will sometimes just use a razor blade or a knife to create lacerations. And then they just rub the powder or the drug into those lacerations in order to gain the uh, systemic absorption. This was a patient we saw in our clinic who was skin popping with Welbutrin. Yeah, I know of all things like Welbutrin. But, uh, this was, is a 39-year-old female who was actually recently admitted for uh, mercibacteremia, and she has a history of opioid use disorder and is on methadone. And you can see, again, just these well-demarcated, sharp, punched-out ulcers in the extremities. And if you think about it, really nothing else looks like this. You can have 
maybe excoriations, but there's not a lot of surrounding trauma, and it's not sharply angulated. Ecthyma, not really. And the, the physiology or mechanism behind this is you can imagine injecting a syringe at a 90-degree angle, perpendicular to the skin. And when you push the solvent into that soft tissue in an almost centrifugal manner, it's creating a 360-degree solution in the skin that creates this perfect circle. So it only makes sense, the presentation, based on the mechanism of injection. This was a male, a 38-year-old male, who was admitted to our MICU for acute hypoxic respiratory failure and also had MRSA bacteremia. And he admitted to, to skin popping with Suboxone in the lower extremities. And here, just more of the oval shape, he probably came in at a 60-degree angle rather than a 90-degree angle, so it creates more of an ovoid shape. So there's a study in 2016 out of the International Journal of Drug Policy in Britain where they actually surveyed 329 active IV drug users. And the vast majority, 99%, had no intentions of injecting subcutaneously or skin popping. They all wanted to inject intravenously. Unfortunately, though, 56% reported ever missing a vein and 15% reported missing a vein greater than four times a month. So even though they were trying to hit the vein, they were inadvertently skin popping. And these missed hits or missing the vein uh, were twice as common in terms of skin and soft tissue complications as to those who were not using. And you can actually imagine to be an IV drug abuser, you have to be a very talented phlebotomist, right? You have to be ambidextrous, but you also have to be able to reach areas of your body and contour to, you know, the popliteal fossa or to the feet. Um, so there's, you know, if, if Dartmouth ever needed more phlebotomists, I guess there's, it's somewhere to turn for, for, for hiring. IV drug users are at higher risk of skin and soft tissue infections compared to non-IV drug abusers, and that seems, that's pretty obvious. And their wounds are usually multiloculated, they're deeper, and there's more extensive necrosis compared to those who do not use IV drugs. And skin and soft tissue infections are actually the most common cause of admission for IV drug users. Murphy and others in the Journal of Clinical Infectious Disease in 2001 demonstrated independent risk factors for developing skin and soft tissue infections. And what they found was that the risk, uh, the, oh, I'm sorry, the use of non-sterile needles was a risk factor. Speedball injections, speedball injections are heroin and cocaine combined, and booting, which is the act of drawing blood back into a dirty syringe before injecting into the vein. And all three of these were independent risk factors for developing skin and soft tissue infections. In most cases, blood cultures are negative, staph being the most common pathogen that is cultured. Oral pathogens like Ikenella are sometimes seen because users can use their saliva to clean the needle or their skin prior to injection. Clostridium tetani and Clostridium botulinum have also been seen in patients whose skin pop. And the idea behind that is that, for example, black tar heroin actually has dirt or clay added to it as a dilutant, and the dirt contains spores. And unlike other microbials, when you heat the heroin, the black tar heroin, those spores, due to the heat, are able to germinate. And when these spores are injected into the leg or the extremity, into the subcutaneous tissue, that anaerobic environment allows the spores to germinate. Therefore, you get the exotoxin release and resulting botulism and tetanus. So it's always important in patients who skin pop to get tissue cultures. Necrotizing fasciitis is, a, is more common among IV drug users. Chen and others at the University of Davis found that half of the cases of necrotizing fasciitis over 15 years at their hospital 
were related to IV drug abusers. And the most common presentation of necrotizing fasciitis was pain out of proportion and erythema. The things we typically think about with necrotizing fasciitis, like bullae, tissue crepitants, and skin necrosis, were actually absent. So as a rule, it's strongly recommended that you get surgical exploration or consultation whenever an IV drug abuser comes in with erythema and unexplained pain. Sometimes this can be thought of as drug-seeking behavior, but if they have a history of IV drug abuse, it's important to take it seriously because there could be underlying necrotizing fasciitis. This is a 46-year-old male with a history of chronic hepatitis C and alcoholism. He presented with four days of these purpuric retiform purpura on the hands and these painful uh, plaques. And he underwent an extensive workup as well. He had a vascular surgery consult, infectious disease, plastic surgery, general surgery. Dermatology was finally consulted, and we did a punch biopsy. And in the punch biopsy, you saw this material in the deep dermis in one of the vessels. On higher power, you can see this acellular, you know, dark blue, almost coral-shaped, non-birefringent material that was identified as crosspovidone. Crosspovidone is a common disintegrant and absorbent in tablets. And uh, povidone has a very impressive absorption property to it that, again, allows tablets to be absorbed into the GI tract. And so when these tablets are found in the vascular system, you can imagine that they swell rapidly and they create extensive arterial wall destruction and thrombus formation. And eventually you get vascular remodeling, which results in this foreign body granulomatosis. This is a, a case out of the New England Journal of Medicine of a female who underwent bowel surgery, and she had parental IV access for uh, nutrition. And she was discharged after her bowel surgery with some opiates to help with the postoperative pain. And it turns out that she was injecting the opiate tablets into her parental nutrition access, and she developed shortness of breath. Three weeks later, she presented to her primary care with, oh, with this CT, which demonstrates these innumerable centrilobular nodules in both lungs with the lung biopsy demonstrating this cross on again, this acellular blue material that's consuming the entire lumen resulting in foreign body granulomatosis. But it's not just cross-povidone. Uh, tablets intended for oral use typically, typically contain insoluble binding agents like talc, microcrystalline cellulose, potato starch, cornstarch. Even hypodermic needle fragments have been seen in organs in IV drug users. The medications most commonly abused in this manner are Ritalin, oral opiates, and antihistamines. And there's actually been cases of infiltrative cross-povidone in the bone marrow causing an intractable anemia in patients. So it's not just the pulmonary vasculature. It can be basically any organ in the body. This is just a picture of purpuric papules on the palm due to emboli of pill fragments. And illicit substance abuse can present as an impressive array of skin eruptions, all of which occur more frequently in IV drug users compared to those who do not use. They can present as Steven Johnson syndrome or urticaria, which is hives, uh, morbilliform or drug eruptions, vasculitis, fixed drug eruptions, bullae, blisters here. So it's always important when you have a patient come in with a very impressive rash or exanthem that you at least consider illicit substance abuse. So pearls for opiates and systemic complications, unilateral ulcers in an odd distribution should make you think at least of intraarterial injections, so you should screen for IV drug abuse. Pain out of proportion and erythema in an IV drug abuser should result in immediate surgical consultation. 
Skin popping can induce anaerobic spore-forming infection, so it's important to get a tissue culture. And illicit substance abuse can manifest in an array of cutaneous findings. So again, I hope this was an educational review, um, and hopefully we gain something from it to help these patients receive their appropriate therapy that they need. These are my references, and I will end by saying that there is more than one way to get high in this life. So. <laughs>
of bringing together that experience and educating the rest of our section about what we're seeing. Yeah. Great. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Good job. Sure, yeah. Feel good? That's not speaking out. <laughs>